0: Welcome to the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you for listening. In the first episode of our series on the Meiji Restoration, we discussed roughly the first half of the Bakumatsu period of Japanese history. The arrival of American Commodore Matthew Perry sent shockwaves through Japanese society that I doubt even he could have foreseen. Historically, Japan under the Tokugawa Shogunate was a closed country, With very rare exceptions, no one was allowed to enter the country and no one was allowed to leave. This was a conscious decision on the part of the Tokugawa government, or the bakufu as it was called, so as to preserve stability. The policies of seclusion, collectively termed Sokoku laws, seemed to work as Japan enjoyed 250 years of relative peace and stability under Tokugawa rule. This all changed, as previously mentioned, with the arrival of American Commodore Matthew Perry and his squadron to Edo, modern Tokyo, in July 1853. Commodore Perry had been charged by President Millard Fillmore with ending Japan's long exclusion and securing a treaty that would open diplomatic and trade relations. Perry treated the Japanese plenipotentiaries in a rather high-handed way. When the Japanese initially refused to deal with him, he gifted the officials two white flags, telling them that if they continued to refuse him, that they would have war, and in that event, they would need those flags, because they would almost certainly surrender. The Japanese despised the Americans' arrogance, but those in power realized the reality of the situation. Perry's squadron of modern steamships, outfitted with the latest cannons, could wipe the shogunate's capital off the map. Faced with little recourse, the Japanese and Americans concluded a treaty, the so-called Treaty of Amity and Commerce, in 1854. Commodore Perry left political turmoil in his wake. Two political factions emerged with differing ideas on how to deal with the newfound foreign threat. Of these groups, the Expel the Barbarians faction advocated for war with the foreign powers immediately. The other, the Open the Country faction, advocated for a more measured approach. Most believed that limited cooperation with the Western powers was needed for the time being, so that Japan could build up its military strength for the clash with the Western powers that many saw as inevitable. In very broad terms, supporters of the Expel the Barbarians movement rallied around the emperor and his court, who were generally ill-informed of outside political developments and as such were quite xenophobic, whereas proponents of the Open the Country movement tended to side with the shogunate. Although a conflict between these two institutions did not yet exist, across the political spectrum there was a recognition of the basic reality— that Japan could not hope to hold its own against the Western powers unless it modernized, that is to say, westernized its military. A popular slogan of the day was, Control the Barbarians Through Barbarian Technology. Yet, despite this consensus, a bitter factional struggle emerged within the bakufu, between proponents of the Expel the Barbarians and of the Open the Country movements. The leader of the faction advocating for the expulsion of the barbarians immediately was Tokugawa Nariyaki, a powerful daimyo who was once advisor to the shogun himself. On the opposing side, advocating for opening the country, was ie Nausuke, a less prestigious but power-hungry daimyo. In 1857, the United States returned, demanding a more robust treaty that contained specific provisions for facilitating foreign trade and for a permanent American diplomatic presence within the country. The foreign policy debate became entangled with matters of shogunal succession, when the shogun, Tokugawa Iesada, died without an heir in 1858. Thanks to some political maneuvering, Ie Naosuke was able to seize power. He became the head of the Tokugawa Council of Elders in early 1858, effectively making him the most powerful person in Japan, below the shogun himself. His first act in this position was to sign off on the so-called Harris Treaty, which only further weakened Japan's standing relative to the Western powers. Next, he ensured that his candidate for the shogunate, Tokugawa Iemochi, was able to secure power. Now acting as regent for the 12-year-old shogun, Ie had his political opponents, including Tokugawa Narayaki, arrested en masse in what has become known as the Ansei Purge. It was for these actions, both the signing of the treaty and for the purge, that on March 24, 1860, 18 former samurai, 17 of whom were former retainers of Tokugawa Nariaki, assassinated Regent Ienausuke as he proceeded into the shogun's residence at Edo Castle. That about brings us to where we left off. No singular man did more to turn public opinion against the bakufu than Ienausuke, but the seeds of the bakufu's downfall had been planted several years even before the Perry crisis had really set events in motion. The intellectual origins of the nascent anti-bakufu movement can be found in the mito school, The scholars of the Mido school combined Neo-Confucian thought with native Japanese Shinto to forge an ideology that reconciled the relationship between the shogun and the emperor. From the onset of the Tokugawa shogunate, the shoguns sidelined the emperor from politics entirely, sequestering him and his court in the palaces of Kyoto. For the most part, the emperor contented himself with this arrangement, busying himself and his courtiers with cultural and intellectual pursuits. The shogun held all political power made all political decisions, but according to Shinto, the emperor was divine, the descendant of the sun goddess Amaterasu, and as such there were no constraints on his heavenly-derived power. It must be remembered, of course, that the shogun ruled directly at the emperor's discretion. How was one able to reconcile the theoretical relationship between the emperor and the shogun with the reality of the political situation? The philosophers of the Mido school held that, quote, It became the shogun's duty to show reverence toward the emperor and benevolence to the people as a condition of his monarchical power. And since benevolence entailed not only protecting the population from hardship, but also defending it from foreign attack, sono, or honoring the emperor, logically included joy, or expelling the barbarian. By signing dishonorable and disadvantageous treaties with the West in contravention of an imperial command, the shogun, it could be argued, Failed simultaneously in the duties of loyalty and benevolence. Quote. Even still, after the signing of the Perry Treaty in 1854, later philosophers such as Izawa Seishizai and Yoshida Shōin, both of whom had a multitude of personal reasons for detesting the Bakufu, nevertheless stopped short of advocating for the overthrow of Tokugawa rule and the restoration of the emperor. It was the events of 1858 that changed their opinions on that specific matter. When Perry delivered his ultimatum and departed for the first time in 1853, the Bakufu essentially democratized its decision-making process by circulating copies of Perry's missive and asking their subjects for advice on how to deal with the crisis. This move inevitably emboldened many younger, lower-class samurai to abandon their masters and become ronin, so as to link up and conspire with like-minded individuals in cities such as Edo and Kyoto. These ronin were not uniformly of the samurai class. Some were merchants, others were farmers, theoretically inferior to the samurai with whom they now consorted, but nevertheless united with them in a common desire to see the foreigners driven from their land. Over time, this group formed a new identity, that of the Ishin Shishi, or simply Shishi, meaning men of high purpose. This new group, the Shishi, was radicalized by the signing of the Harris Treaty and the Ansei Purge in 1858. Those who opposed the recent actions of the Bakufu had varied motivations: blind hatred of the arrogant foreigners, deep reverence toward the Emperor. Even those who opposed the treaty on the basis that capitulating to the foreign powers out of fear was no way to regenerate Japanese national strength. These were just a few of the many reasons why they came to oppose YA. Nauske and the Bakufu. Through his actions, as author W.G. Beasley posits, EA had made the bakufu into a symbol of the appeasement of the foreigners, but also the defender of the feudal bakufu-han governmental structure. Thus, it is no wonder why so many shishi hailed from Tozama domains. Note, the Hans, or domains, were split between the Fudai domains, which enjoyed a more privileged status, and the Tozama domains, made up of the remnants of those clans who had initially opposed Tokugawa rule, at the end of the Sengoku period. Many Shishi were the former retainers of the domains of Setsuma, Choshu, and Tosa, three Tozama domains which had largely been shut out of government power under the shogunate. The brazen assassination of Ie Naosuke, in the words of historian Marius Jansen, initiated a decade of violence. The 18 Shishi had planned for their assassination to coincide with a coup d'etat against the Bakufu, led by their former masters of the mito and satsuma domains this eventuality failed to materialize mostly due to the unwillingness of the daimyo to openly defy the bakufu at least at this juncture what iennausuke's assassination did result in however was a wave of terroristic assassinations of foreigners and their japanese collaborators in 1859 as per the terms of the treaties conducted with the united states france britain russia and the netherlands The ports of Kanagawa, Nagasaki, and Hakodate were opened up to foreign trade. The Japanese people began to feel the adverse effects of unfair Western trade policies almost immediately. All of a sudden, there were shortages and higher prices on domestic products the Japanese were used to, such as tea, grain, and lamp oil. There were also shortages of currency. Foreign diseases of Western origin, mostly cholera, now ravaged the land, In the cities where the treaty ports were located, many shishi began to see their worst fears realized, the first steps in the colonization of Japan. Outraged, these shishi brandished their swords to undertake a methodological campaign of terror against the foreigners. The first of such assassinations took place on June 7, 1859, in Yokohama. The sleepy fishing village of Yokohama was chosen as the primary location of foreign settlement in Japan, mostly due to its proximity to the treaty port of Kanagawa. The port had been open to the foreigners for less than a month at this time. The assassinations, believed to have been formerly retainers of the Mido domain, ran down two Russian nationals, a naval officer and a sailor, in the streets of Yokohama. The Russians were not merely killed, but were hacked to pieces by the assassins. The British consul in Japan wrote of the incident, quote, The manner in which the murdered men were slashed and nearly dismembered indicated more than a mere desire to disable or kill. There was something savage and vindictive, indicating personal or political feeling in the number and nature of the wounds. End quote. The consul was right in a sense. These killings were just as motivated by pure hatred of foreign arrogance as they were by politics. The killings were explicitly intended to provoke both the bakufu into reneging on its foreign policy and to provoke the foreigners into the war that the Shishi were so desperate to fight. Three months after the murder of the two Russian seamen, a Chinese servant in the employ of the French legation was cut down in the streets of Yokohama. Another three months later, the British consul's Japanese interpreter was stabbed to death in Edo. The very next month, two Dutch merchants were killed and dismembered in Yokohama. The next ten months saw a lull in attacks on foreigners, although it was during this time that the assassination of Ie Nausuke was carried out. A short time later, however, American consul Townsend Harris's interpreter, a Dutchman, was ambushed in the streets of Edo by an indeterminate number of assassins, who dispatched the interpreter and his Japanese bodyguards and fled into the side streets. The most brazen of these early attacks by shishi on Westerners came in April 1861. That month, a band of about 16 ronin from the Mito domain, urged on by a false rumor asserting that the British consul, Rutherford Alcock, had entered the imperial capital of Kyoto, a grave and unforgivable offense on the part of a foreigner, planned an attack on the British Embassy in Edo. The embassy, which was temporarily housed in an old Buddhist temple, was, in light of recent events, heavily guarded. Over two hundred Bakufu samurai patrolled the premises day and night. The Shishi attacked around midnight. The Shishi surprisingly managed to hold their own against the Bakufu guards, despite being so outnumbered, but they ultimately failed in their mission to assassinate the British consul and his staff. One Mr. Oliphant, the consul Alcock's secretary, was wounded in the arm and neck, and one Mr. Morrison, the consul of Nagasaki, was wounded on his forehead. Neither of these woundings proved to be fatal. Alcock described the scene as a wild scene of tumult and conflict, as the British staffers fled safely and the bakufu samurai flooded into the courtyard to engage with the attackers. One of the shishi was captured, but the rest of them managed to flee into the night. The Western powers, for their part, showed great restraint. With one glaring exception, they refrained from launching any military intervention in Japan to protect their citizens and economic interests, as it was feared by men of the Open the Country camp, even as the murders of foreigners continued apace. Said exception was the Tsushima Incident. In April 1861, the Russian vessel Posadnik arrived on the island of Tsushima. A province of Japan since the 6th century, Tsushima Island lay off Japan's west coast, almost equidistant between the Japanese island of Kyushu and the Korean Peninsula. As such, its strategic value was well known to the Western powers, Russia among them. On April 2nd, the Posadnik landed at the village of Osaki. Immediately, the Russian sailors raised their flag and began to erect temporary housing for the sailors using local timber. The daimyo of the Tsushima domain was anxious not to provoke the Russians, but the local peasantry had no such qualms. On April 12th, a band of peasant soldiers, led by one Matsumara Yasugoro, attacked the Russian sailors. In the course of the attack, no Russians were wounded or killed, but two of the Japanese peasants, including Matamura himself, were killed. The following month, the bakufu politely told the Russians to leave, as Tsushima was not an open port as per the terms of the 1858 Russo-Japanese Treaty of Amity and Commerce. The Russians obstinately refused to leave, and only did so with the arrival of two British warships to the scene. Meanwhile, in internal politics, the assassination of Ie Nausuke had left a power vacuum that was filled by many of the very same men that he had persecuted not two years prior. Tokugawa Nariaki had died shortly into his term of house arrest, but his son, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, was among those who were rehabilitated with Ie out of the picture. Yoshinobu, ironically, took on Ie's former role, not as the head of the Council of Elders, but as the regent of the current shogun, the now 14-year-old Tokugawa Iemochi. Part of the reason why war didn't break out between Japan and the West at this time was that despite its new anti-foreign stance, the Bakufu still demonstrated its willingness to cooperate with the foreign powers. In January 1862, the Bakufu dispatched a 40-man diplomatic mission to Europe. Their principal goal was to delay the opening of further trade ports the following year, including at Edo and Osaka. This was done with the fear that a larger foreign presence in Edo would only lead to further unrest and more murders of foreigners. The Japanese were able to secure an agreement from the British, the so-called London Protocol, whereby the opening of these extra trade ports to the west was to be delayed by six years. Thus, the bakufu hoped to delay the military confrontation with the western powers. With members of Tokugawa Narayaki's old faction in power, the bakufu now took on a more pro-imperial direction, seeking to mend the wounds inflicted by Ie Nausuke. They now pursued a policy that they called Kobugatai, Union of Court and Camp, or, to be more precise, a Union of Kyoto and Edo, to this end, bakufu politician Ando Nobumasa proposed a marriage between the shogun and the emperor's younger sister, Kazunomiya. The match seemed perfect. Not only were the two the same age, 15 years old, but politically it would be a boon for the bakufu. Not only would the marriage smooth over relations between the bakufu and the imperial court but it would serve to silence the bakufu's political opponents in the Sono joi movement, as to attack the shogunate would now mean to attack a member of the sacred emperor's family. When first proposed to the imperial court, Emperor Komei opposed the marriage. He deeply cherished his younger sister and had no desire to see her sent off to Edo, which was so close to the foreign settlement of Yokohama and the detested barbarians. But Iwakura Tomomi, one of the emperor's more politically savvy advisors, saw this as an excellent opportunity. He recommended the emperor accept the proposition on two conditions. One, that the bakufu agreed to take immediate action to expel the foreigners, and two, that the bakufu deferred to the imperial court for a final say on all political matters, both domestic and foreign. This way, the emperor could begin to exercise a measure of political control for the first time in nearly 700 years. As a sign of the emperor's renewed influence, in 1863, Iemochi traveled to Kyoto to pay his respects to his new brother-in-law, Emperor Komei. This marks the first time since 1634 that an acting shogun had done so. No doubt tantalized at the prospect of finally curtailing the shogun's power, Emperor Komei agreed to Iwakura's proposal, and so it was that on November fifteenth, 1862, Shogun Iemochi and Princess Kazu were married in a fittingly elaborate ceremony held in Edo. As Japan entered the year 1863, it seemed that the bakufu had successfully outmaneuvered its opponents in the sono joy movement. The kokubukai, the union of Kyoto and Edo, should have served to silence its staunchly pro-imperial opponents. Taking care of the sono part of sono joy, and its promise to expel the barbarians as a condition of the union, should have taken care of the joy part. Unfortunately for the bakufu, its opponents were by no means placated. They saw the marriage alliance between Edo and Kyoto as a political sham. They knew that the Bakufu would never make good on its promises to expel the barbarians. For the princess to get married under such circumstances was unacceptable to the Bakufu's opponents. They decided to target the architect of the Kobugatai policies, Ando Nobumasa, for assassination. In what began as a repeat of the Sakura incident in which I was assassinated, As Ando's retinue approached the Sakashita gate of Edo Castle, a man suddenly fired a pistol into his planican, prompting his five accomplices to draw their swords and charge at the retinue. The shot had missed its target, however, and Ando was able to escape unscathed. The same could not be said for the six would-be assassins who, outnumbered almost ten to one, were all killed in battle. In a way, however, the Shishi had succeeded, as Ando, badly shaken by the incident, resigned his office mere months later. As mentioned previously, the three hotbeds of anti bakufu pro-imperial sentiment were the domains of Choshu, Tosa, and Satsuma. However, the sentiments of these imperial loyalists, who were for the most part lower-class samurai, were not necessarily shared by their lords. Only in Choshu were the imperial loyalists in a position of power. But their explicitly radical anti bakufu stance meant that they were not welcomed by the imperial court, so they were largely excluded from politics on the national stage. In Tosa, the daimyo, Yamanochi Yodo, had opposed Ienausuke and his signing of the Harris Treaty, for which he was targeted by the Ansei Purge and effectively forced to resign his position. While Yodo remained the daimyo on paper, actual power passed to his vassal and regent, Yoshida Toyo, Yoshida supported the union of court and camp, and used his powers to suppress the machinations of the more hardcore imperial loyalists in Tosa. That leaves us with Setsuma, which was in an entirely different position altogether. The former daimyo of the Satsuma domain was Shimazu Nariyakira, who was a very active member of Tokugawa Nariyaki's faction in the bakufu. This led him, too, to get caught up in the Ansei Purge, whereby he was confined to house arrest, where he died within a year. The son of his brother, Hisamitsu, was chosen as the next lord of Satsuma. The son of Nariyakira's brother, Hisamitsu, was chosen as the next lord of Satsuma. However, this son, Shimazu Takeyoshi, was not yet of age to rule, so his father, Hisamitsu, effectively became the acting daimyo. Hisamitsu had much in common ideologically with the imperial loyalists of the lower samurai classes, But the crucial difference was that while they were beginning to openly call for the overthrow of the bakufu, Hisamitsu believed that the bakufu was still an important institution, albeit one that was in desperate need of reform. So Hisamitsu decided to make a move to get involved in national politics. In early 1862, Hisamitsu marched to Kyoto at the head of a massive armed retinue. As it turned out, Hisamitsu's tacit support of the bakufu and strong anti-foreign stance were in perfect alignment with the imperial court. The massive shishi contingent in the city only picked up on Hisamitsu's anti-foreign stance, and not his tacit support of the bakufu, and thus they assumed that he was with them in their desire to overthrow the bakufu. Thus, the Shishi of Kyoto plotted to either support Hisamitsu when he launched an anti-bakufu uprising, or to carry out their own anti-bakufu uprising that Hisamitsu would be forced to join in on. The Shishi planned to assassinate two of the highest-ranking bakufu officials in Kyoto, as a signal to start a much larger rebellion against the Tokugawa. Unfortunately for them, Hisamitsu was not on board with this plan. When he discovered their plot, he was absolutely furious, not the least of which because 20 of his vassals were involved. On the night of May 21st, 1862, Hisamitsu dispatched a squad of nine of his most skilled swordsmen to the end of Teradaya, midway between Osaka and Kyoto, where the conspirators were plotting. Hisamitsu instructed his men to bring the Satsuma conspirators back alive if at all possible, but if not, they were authorized to kill them. That night, Hisamitsu's hit squad arrived at the Teradaya Inn and confronted the conspirators, informing them of the daimyo's orders for them to cease and desist. Tempers inevitably flared and fighting ensued, and a bloody clash in the cramped, darkened inn One of Hisumitsu's men and nine of the rebels, including Ariyama Shinshichi, the ringleader of the conspiracy, were killed. A lull in the fighting ensued as the remaining Shishi, who were on the upper floor, scrambled to retrieve their arms and clambered down the stairs. A standoff ensued wherein the leader of the squad of nine, now eight, Narahara Ki-Hachiro, was able to appeal to the men's loyalty to their daimyo in order to convince them to stand down. And so it was that in the Teradaya incident, the plot against the bakufu was foiled, ironically, by men of the Satsuma domain. Meanwhile, in Tosa, a lower-ranking samurai and sonojoy radical named Takechi Hanpieta orchestrated the assassination of Yoshida Toyo, the regent of Tosa, who had so successfully suppressed the most radical elements of the sonojoy movement. With the Yoshida's death, the Sonojoi radicals swept into power in Tosa's politics. Takechi now reached out to the Shishi of Kyoto, who had ties to the Tosa domain. They, too, were many in number, and likewise eager for blood. They were determined to succeed where the men of Satsuma had failed, and, in hopes of launching a greater anti-Bakufu uprising, they unleashed their own campaign of terroristic assassinations within the imperial capital. Prominent among the assassins were Kawakama Genzai, Kinryo Toshiaki, Tanaka Shinbei, and Okada Izo. Collectively, these men were the four hitokiri of the bakumatsu, hitokiri being a term translating to mancutter, or, to anglicize it a bit more, man-slayer. The four hitokiri were all known for their great skills with the sword and their ability to ruthlessly murder their political opponents. The first target of the hitokiri in Kyoto was Shimada Sakon, an advisor to the imperial chancellor who was once a collaborator of Ienosuke. Tanaka Shinbei and two accomplices stormed the house that Shimada was staying at, quickly overpowering the guards and beheading him, just before he was able to escape. Tanaka and his accomplices were never caught, but Shimada's head was found the next day atop a pike in downtown Kyoto. Attached to the pike was a placard detailing the reason for Shimada's assassination. Quote, this man has been found guilty of collaborating with the traitor, Ie Nausuke, for which we inflict divine punishment. End quote. The next victim of the Hitokiri was Honma Sachiro. Honma was an odd target for assassination, seeing as how he was an outspoken Sonojoy activist and imperial loyalist, but it seems that the motive for his murder was almost entirely personal. He had gone around Kyoto claiming responsibility for the assassination of the Tosa regent Yoshida Toyo, which it seemed that the man actually responsible, Takechi Hanpieta, could not countenance, so he put out the order for his death. Not long after the assassination of of Shimada Sakon, Honma Sachiro's head was also found atop a pike, not far from where the head of Shimada had been discovered. Alongside the severed head was another placard detailing his crimes. For the next year, Takechi continued to orchestrate the murders of ranking bakufu officials in Kyoto. Apparently, who was behind the assassinations was somewhat of an open secret, as the bloodletting came to unsettle some of the nobles at the imperial court, including the emperor himself, Takechi was told to halt his campaign of terror. Takechi obeyed the orders, but that did not stop the hitokiri from continuing to target those that they deemed worthy of death. The assassination campaign of the four hitokiri of the bakumatsu was stopped in 1863 by two events. The first was the return of Daimyo Yanamochi Yodo to power in Tosa. As revenge for the assassination of his regent and good friend Yoshida Toyo, Yamanuchi had the radical imperial loyalists purged from the domain's government, including Takechi Hanpieta, who, dishonored, committed seppuku shortly afterwards. The second event which put a halt to their assassination campaign was the formation of a new elite samurai police force called the Shinsengumi, or New Select Brigade. The Shinsengumi were formed under the auspices of the bakufu, and were given a mandate to patrol the streets of Kyoto to combat these terrorists, although the definition of terrorist was soon expanded to include anyone who openly opposed the bakufu. The Shinsengumi were highly effective. They hunted down and killed Shishi by the dozen, and restored order to the imperial capital quickly after their founding, much to the relief of both the shogun and the emperor. The fates of the infamous four Hitokiri vary. Tanaka Shinbei was targeted for arrest by the Shinsengumi shortly after their formation. He was arrested in 1863 and committed seppuku while in police custody. Okada Izo was also arrested by the Shinsengumi and executed in 1865. Kawakami Gensai managed to survive the Shinsengumi onslaught in Kyoto. He fled to the Choshu domain and would eventually help lead their forces to battle against those of the shogunate. He was captured in battle and eventually executed for his crimes. Kinro Toshiaki, like Kawakami, fled Kyoto, going instead to Satsuma, where he lent his blade to their armies. He would fall in battle during the ill-fated Satsuma Rebellion of 1877. Meanwhile, Shimazu Hitsumitsu, who had the ear of the imperial court thanks to his quelling of the nascent uprising, managed to convince them to appoint two of his allies to the ranking positions in the bakufu. Specifically, Hitsumitsu's ally Tokugawa Yoshinobu, was to be given official custody over the 16-year-old shogun Iemochi, and his other ally, Matsudaira Shungaku, was to be made the official regent. Additionally, Hisamitsu was to arrange for the shogun to visit the emperor in Kyoto to discuss the terms of the shogun's promise to expel the foreigners, as he had agreed to do in order to marry the emperor's sister. In the summer of 1862, Hisamitsu marched from Kyoto to Edo at the head of an army of 1,000, a clear show of force. He was easily able to intimidate the Bakufu into accepting the Emperor's demands. With Satsuma's allies now in positions of power in Edo, Hisamitsu was one step further in his plot to reform the Bakufu from within. With his mission accomplished, Hisamitsu and his retinue departed Edo that September. Just after the Satsuma retinue left Kyoto, they encountered, some 30 miles down the road, close to Yokohama, the traveling party of Charles Lennox Richardson a British merchant based out of Shanghai, who just so happened to be visiting some fellow associates based in Yokohama named Woodthorpe Clark and William Marshall. Richardson and his two associates were accompanied by Marshall's sister. Now, as Richardson and company encountered Hisamitsu's retinue, they made a fatal mistake. They failed to dismount their horses and make way for the samurai, as they had been required to by Japanese law. This had been a point of contention between the Japanese and their foreign guests for quite some time now. Two months beforehand, the daimyo of Satsuma had issued a memorandum stating, Recently, foreigners have been riding on horseback in an unmannerly fashion through the streets of Edo and its suburbs. They have also been walking through the city in a similarly rude manner. When the young daimyo is present at Edo or his father Hisamitsu is traveling, if we should encounter any foreigners, we shall do our best to tolerate them when requested by the bakufu to do so. However, if by chance the foreigners should commit a rude or unlawful act, we will not be able to tolerate the matter alone. Therefore, it would inevitably result in trouble for the bakufu. There are laws regarding the travel of daimyo over highways. We ask the bakufu to please inform the ministers of various nations of this so as to avoid rude behavior. If they should still commit illegal acts, even after such precautions have been taken, we will not be able to bear it silently. Rather, we will take appropriate measures to preserve the national honor of Japan. Quote. When the Satsuma retinue encountered Richardson, they did not, in fact, bear it silently. Richardson and his companions were repeatedly instructed to dismount and make way. But the language barrier made communication practically impossible. When Richardson got too close to the daimyo sedan, one of his bodyguards, Narahara Kizemon, brandished his sword and slashed Richardson across the torso. Now bleeding profusely, Richardson attempted to flee the scene, but he encountered another bodyguard, Kukimura Toshiyasu, further down the road. Kukimura later gave an interview to a local newspaper, describing his version of what happened next, At the time, all of us were anxious to kill a foreigner. Suddenly, there was noise from behind, and I thought this was my chance. And I immediately put my hand on the hilt of my sword. As I turned around, I saw an Englishman on horseback, holding his left side and galloping directly at me. I waited until he was within striking range. Then I drew my sword and cut the man with a single motion about the left side of his body. A bloody piece of something fell to the ground. I suppose it was part of his entrails. I wanted to cut him again, so I chased after him. But I was on foot and couldn't catch up with him. I looked back and saw another foreigner galloping in my direction. I cut him about the right side with the same technique. I chased after him also, but couldn't catch him either. I tell you, it was awfully pleasant to cut them. I felt so very relieved. End quote. The British and Japanese accounts of events differ as to what happened next. The Japanese claim that another one of Hisamitsu's bodyguards, Kaida Takiji, whose brother was the one who decapitated Ienosuke two years prior, delivered a swift sword strike to the mortally wounded man's chest, mercifully ending his suffering. The British version of events, however, holds that Kaida, along with six other samurai, each took turns stabbing at Richardson with swords and spears long after he had perished. An autopsy of Richardson's body found no less than ten wounds. Suggesting the British accounting of events was more accurate. Richardson's two male companions escaped, wounded but alive. His female companion was entirely unharmed. With their blood up, Narahara, Kukimura, and Kaida beseeched their daimyo to travel down the road away to Yokohama to slaughter the rest of the insolent foreigners. This bloodbath was averted by the more level-headed Okubo Ichizo, who discouraged them from this sort of action. The British government and the foreign community at Yokohama were incensed by what is known to history as the Namamugi Incident and the Richardson Affair. Unlike with previous incidents in which Western citizens were murdered, the international community now knew exactly who was responsible. The problem was that Shimazu Hitsumitsu was too powerful to be held accountable for it. Immediately, Western civilians at Yokohama began lobbying their governments to mobilize their forces and arrest Hitsumitsu for Richardson's murder. But that suggestion was quickly shot down. Instead, the British government told the bakufu to order Hisamitsu to hand over the individual samurai responsible for Richardson's death, but Hisamitsu refused. He argued that his men had acted in perfect accordance with Kirisute Gomen, the ancient Japanese law that allowed for a samurai to strike down anyone of a lower class for essentially any reason. Following the Richardson affair, Shimazu Hisamitsu and his army returned not to Kyoto, but to his seat of power in Kagoshima to deal with the fallout. With his absence at Kyoto, others moved to fill his place at court, namely the daimyo of Choshu, Mori Takachika, who, unlike Hisamitsu, was entirely beholden to the radical lower-class samurai who wished to overthrow and abolish rather than reform the bakufu. In March 1863, the Sonojoy extremists in the imperial court, with the full backing of the Choshu daimyo, orchestrated somewhat of a coup d'etat, forcing more moderate court officials to resign and appointing their allies in their place. With a more radical court in place, the emperor felt emboldened to assert his power over the bakufu. On March 11th, he issued an ultimatum. Either the bakufu would follow through with its promise to expel the barbarians within the next two months, or the shogun must relinquish his power. The shogun and the bakufu had absolutely no intention of carrying through with the emperor's orders. One member of the Tokugawa Council of Elders was quoted as saying, "...simply to obey the emperor's orders out of blind loyalty, just because it is the emperor's, making no attempt to assess their merits and demands, would be the action of a woman." The powers behind the bakufu decided to make a tactical move, and instead interpreted the emperor's demand as a mere request for the bakufu to initiate negotiations to close the treaty ports. Crucially, two groups of people did not share the bakufu's interpretation of the edict, the foreign powers, and the domains, both of which saw the edict as a declaration of war. On June 25th, the deadline for the bakufu to take military action against the barbarians as per the emperor's edict, Choshu cannons fired upon an American merchant vessel, the USS Pembroke, in the harbor of Shimonoseki. The Pembroke sustained minor damage but was able to escape with no casualties suffered. The attack on the Pembroke was the action of some hot-headed Choshu loyalists, But their actions were soon given official sanction by their daimyo, who ordered that all foreign ships passing through the Shimonoseki Straits should be attacked. A week later, the French steamer Kincheng was attacked as it passed through the Straits of Shimonoseki. Three days later, the Dutch Corvette Medusa was made the victim of Choshu's cannons. The French suffered five casualties, including four dead, while the Dutch suffered nine casualties, including four dead. Both attacks resulted in minimal damage to the foreign ships. News of Choshu's actions quickly reached Kyoto, where they were greeted with the jubilation at the imperial court. The United States, despite now being embroiled in a civil war of its own, soon took revenge for the attack on the Pembroke. The following month, the USS Wyoming was dispatched to the Straits of Shimonoseki. The Choshu shore batteries exchanged cannon fire with the Wyoming for an hour, at the end of which four Choshu shore batteries lay destroyed and four Choshu samurai lay dead. Only four days later, the French, too, moved to take revenge for the attack on their vessel. On July 20th, two French warships arrived in the Straits of Shimonoseki. They bombarded the shore, destroying the remaining Choshu artillery batteries. Afterwards, a company of French marines landed on the beaches, and a fierce melee ensued as the French bayonets clashed with Japanese swords. The French were able to easily overpower the demoralized Choshu samurai, and ransacked a nearby village, looting it of all valuables and putting it to the torch. Meanwhile, the Bakufu had succumbed to pressure from the British government and paid them the ten thousand pounds they had demanded as indemnities for the Richardson affair. But the man most directly responsible, Shimazu Hisamitsu, continued his stubborn resistance. The British had increased their demands from just the arrest of the murderers of Richardson to twenty-five thousand pounds as reparations. On August fifteenth, eighteen sixty-three. The British dispatched a squadron of seven warships to the Satsuma stronghold of Kagoshima, in hopes of opening negotiations with the domain's leadership. The Satsuma continued their obstinate refusal and dragged out negotiations as long as they possibly could. Meanwhile, Narahara Kizemon and Keita Takiji, two of the men responsible for Richardson's murder, boarded the British flagship, disguised as watermelon merchants, in an attempt to assassinate British officers. Unfortunately for them, they were unable to approach any of the officers, and so they gave up. As negotiations continued to go nowhere, the British seized three Satsuma merchant vessels, hoping to force the Satsuma leadership to concede defeat. This had the exact opposite effect. The Satsuma retaliated with force, waiting for a typhoon to blow in before unleashing a volley of cannon fire on the British ships. In response, the British looted and burned the three captured Satsuma vessels, and proceeded to bombard the shore. Within hours, huge swaths of Kagoshima were in flames. The Satsuma cannon batteries on the shore continued firing on the British squadron, causing them some damage and forcing them to retreat. Thus, Satsuma was able to claim victory in the heat of the moment, but the reality of the situation was far more sobering. Realizing that he could not hold out much longer against the British, Shimazu Hitsumitsu agreed to the British terms paying the £25,000 indemnity, and offering them his promise to arrest Richardson's killers, if they could ever be found, that is. The humiliation inflicted by the British on Choshu and Satsuma should have convinced imperial loyalists everywhere of the futility of of a military confrontation with the Western powers. Clearly, Japan needed time to modernize its military before such an undertaking could be carried out. And yet the radicals of Choshu refused to desist, and continued its policy of direct aggression towards the Western powers, keeping the Straits of Shimonoseki close to them. Shimazu Hisamitsu, of all people, greatly shaken by the destruction of his capital, moved to lessen the influence of Choshu, which he now saw as a liability. On September thirtieth, eighteen 1863, Hisamitsu ordered his men to man the gates of the Imperial Palace in the dead of night. The following morning, when the men of Choshu and their allies attempted to enter the palace, they were denied entry. A tense standoff ensued as the Satsuma and Choshu men stared each other down outside the gates of the imperial palace, with neither side willing to relent. Eventually, the emperor himself caught wind of what was going on, and sensing the way the wind was blowing, he ordered Choshu to stand down, lest they become an enemy of the emperor. Faced with little choice, the Choshu men laid down their arms and slunk off to the other side of the city to plan their next moves. The events of 1863 and 1864 marked yet another turning point in Japanese politics. The attacks by the foreigners on Kagoshima and Shimonoseki caused many to become disillusioned with the idea of Sonojoi. While the prospect of war with the Western powers was more real than it had ever been in the past decade, many within the imperial loyalist camp had reached the same conclusion that proponents of the Open the Country movement had reached years ago, Japan needed to modernize, and fast, if it was going to stand a chance against the Western powers in a war. It was at this time that the emphasis among those in the Imperial Loyalist camp went from Sono Joi, or Revered the Emperor Expelled the Barbarians, to Fukoko Kyohe, enrich the country, strengthen the army. Although this, at least temporarily, realigned the interests of the Imperial Court and its supporters with those of the Bakufu, there remained one thorn in the side of national unity— Choshu. The radicals of Choshu refused to step down and ceased provoking hostilities with the foreigners. In early 1864, a multinational fleet consisting of ships from the United States, Britain, France, and the Netherlands assembled in Edo Bay with the intention of launching another punitive expedition against Choshu. Clearly, the court and the bakufu had to do something about Choshu before they dragged all of Japan into a war that they knew they could not win. And that is where I will leave things off for now. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks to watch what happens next, as the people of Japan struggle to achieve the ends of Fukoku Kyohei, and events push erstwhile rivals Setsuma and Shoshu closer towards an alliance against the Makufu. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about today's episode, or suggestions for any future episodes, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can address such queries to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which will be in the description. Additionally, if you like this show and would like to help keep it running, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon or buying some books from the eBay store. Links to both of these sites will also be in the description. Anyway, until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I'm your host, Will Connor. signing off.